Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 John. That's all the way at the end of the Bible. If you look at Revelation and then you back up just a few books, you'll find 1 John. Good morning. How are you? New Year? You know, I'm, I'm happy that you chose to spend your first Sunday of the year together worshiping with the people of God. Um, I'm excited because this year there's some new things going on in my life. One of which is I have decided that I was going to follow my children's advice and up my wardrobe repertoire. And so what I did was uh, I I, I signed up with this service called Stitch Fix. And so you tell them how, you you tell them the real measurements and then you, you send it off and they send you a box in the mail and when it gets to your house, you open the box and, and their designers give you what you're supposed to look like. So this is my first stitch fix. Now, let me just explain to you what's going on here. So the deal is, you're, you're supposed to try it on and see if you like it. And if you do like it, you pay them. If you don't like it, you simply put it in a bag and you send it back. So, but once you, once you cut the tag, you're committed. So I'm just, I'm just trying it out. Without, you know, because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if I want the look yet. I'm just not entirely sure. And so my, is it a good look? Okay. So my daughter is going to be the, the, not that I don't trust your, your advice, but my daughter's going to be the final tally of thumbs up or thumbs down. Like that gladiator thing, right? I'm going to, I'm going to do a live video and she's going to go, oh, you know, one of those. So now if I can get her to pay for it, that'd be even better. Um, but, but that, that's, so if, don't let the, don't let the tags distract you, okay? Just, just so you know. Um, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Do you know for sure that you can have eternal life? Let me ask a more pointed question. Do you know for sure that you have eternal life. That when you die, you are right with God and you will spend eternity with God in a place that we call heaven. Do you know for sure? You know, it used to be in, in, um, uh, in, in church world, at least in evangelical church world, specifically in Baptist churches, that, that this was a topic preached on all the time. And the way that the old school preachers, you, you would probably remember this, because I'm sure Henry has said these words. Uh, Henry Willett, a, just a great man of God, a preacher who uh, uh, just has had a great impact here on this church. Most of you don't know him, but I wish you could have. Uh, tremendous man. But, but he would have said these words, do you know that you know that you know that you know? Y'all ever heard a preacher say that? Do you know that you know that you know that you know? Now, if you're shaking your head, that either means you're old or, right, and that includes me, or you went to an old school Southern Baptist church because that's the way that was said. Do you know that you know that you know that you know? And there was this desire for preachers, and, and, and 
maybe it's still there, maybe it's not for a lot today, but there was this great desire that there was this certainty in your heart that you knew God and that when you died, you would have eternal life. And so this morning, I want to go back to that. And I want to ask you and then show you what the Bible says because the Bible explicitly and specifically says that you can know that you know that you know you are right with God. Now, that's important for us because if I were guessing... I would say that there are a number of people in this room who question whether or not you know God. I know that, that in my early days of, of being a follower of Jesus, I used to have that question a lot. And it used to plague me at night. I used to lie in bed going, Lord, am I sure that I'm, I'm a believer? Am I sure that I'm saved? Do I know? And, and it was a horrible thought because I remember telling God, God, I don't know that I know so if you'll just tell me that I know, then I can settle this. And, and if it turns out I don't really know, then I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to know, right? I just wanted that certainty and that guarantee. Well, this morning, I want to show you that the Bible says there is a certainty and there is a guarantee. There are some people who would believe that you can't really know until you, until you step into eternity and God goes, you either made it or you didn't. But that's not what the Bible says. First John Chapter 5, verse 13 is where we're going to start, but we're going to backtrack a little bit. This is John, the evangelist, saying, or writing this letter, and he's writing it to believers. This is not to unbelievers, although it certainly, what, what, the, the, the principles apply, but he's writing to believers that they would be certain of their faith, and he says, I write to you these things, or I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So there it is, black and white. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now I want to look at two words here. The first word is know, and the second word is eternal. Because these two words give us the, the depth of what is being said here. When he says, I write these things that you may know, that word know is not a word that it means you just perceive. It, it, it's not a loose word. It's not a soft word. It's a very determined word. It's a word that means that you have confidence. You have full assurance. You have no doubt. So to know something means I am, I am fully confident standing upon the promises of God that I have absolute certainty that I have eternal life. So that's the no here. Now the word eternal is a really cool word. The word eternal here doesn't mean a quantity of life. It's not duration. In other words, the, the scripture is not saying that I write these things so that you may know for certain that you have uh, life in eternity. It's actually rather than a quantity of life, it's a quality so you know for sure, certain that you have a quality of life. The quality of life that God has intended for you and I to have. Jesus said it another way. He said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have life most abundantly. In other words, we're not simply meant to endure life. We are meant to live life. We are meant to have the kind of life that God had purposed in his heart all along for you and for me to have. But there's a problem. You and I do not know this kind of eternal life. 
Again, eternal life, a quality of life that is beyond what we can find in any other place but through Jesus. We don't have this quality of life because of sin. So we need to backtrack a little bit. He's saying, I write these things to you, know, to you who believe so that you may know you have eternal life, which that must mean that it's possible or that, that there is a condition of not having eternal life, right? So if, if, if he's saying, I want you to know that you have eternal life, he's also saying the converse of that, meaning there, is, there are many who don't have eternal life, that either that quantity or that quality. So what is that? Well, to not have eternal life is the condition of every human being on the planet. White, black, yellow, green, you, whatever color, whatever race, whatever ethnicity, whatever social status, whatever uh, nationality, the condition of the human being is darkness. The condition of the human heart is sinful and is lostness. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not even one. And the Bible tells us that to say that we have a great need. There is a great separation between mankind and God. But the whole story of the Bible is reconciliation. That's why the Bible says that we have been reconciled to God through or in Christ Jesus. That means that that's why the Bible tells us that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed onto us, that we've been given the righteousness of Christ because without Christ Jesus, we are unrighteous. And this is the problem for most human beings. There is not a recognition of either their desperate need or the solution to their need. There's a rec- there's, 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 oh, uh, maybe I said that wrong. There's not a recognition of need. There are many who would say, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm not perfect, but who is? But I'm pretty good. So if you ask the average person, do you know for sure that you'll go to heaven when you die? Most people would say, well, I, I think so. Well, how can you know for sure? Well, you know, I haven't done all good, but also haven't been awfully bad. I'm kind of like right in the middle and kind of like my good and my bad will kind of outweigh each other. And the Bible says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, I don't want to be, be, be gross to you, but if you go back and you look at the actual meaning of what's being said that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, the, the meaning is actually... Uh, 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 gross, nasty, soiled, disgusting rags. So all of our good that we can do is gross, nasty, disgusting, soiled in the eyes of God. You say, well, how is it possible for anyone then to find God? Well, John three sixteen says it best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you will believe in him, you will not perish, you will not die, but you will have eternal or everlasting life. And so we were given this letter, John. We were also given the gospel of John specifically so that we would know that we have eternal life. We know we need eternal life because of sin, and I told you there are two things. One is people who don't realize that they need eternal life. And the other are those who don't understand the solution to it. 
There are those who would believe that many roads lead to God. That many different ways to find God. You just have to choose the path that works for you. If that were true, then God is a bald-faced liar. So either God is a liar or God is not. Because the scripture tells us that there's one way to the sun. Let me, let me show you this. If you will, go to... Um, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And I'll get back to that point in just a minute. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. Now that is in the New Testament. If you go to the end of the Old Testament, then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John, chapter 3, says this. It's a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So, let me tell you who this guy was. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the ruling council, which means he wasn't just your low-level, average, ordinary Pharisee. He would have been the higher, more educated, more schooled, more powerful. He was the religious teacher of the day. When people wanted to know about God, they came to him to find out what the Scriptures talked about or said about God. And yet, at night, why at night? Because he had this curiosity that couldn't be reconciled. And if he went during the day, his Pharisee brothers would say, what are you doing? You're not allowed to go to that, 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 uh, that, that man Jesus. So he went at night secretly. And when he got there, he said, there's something about you. There's something going on because nobody could do what you're doing. Nobody could say what you're saying unless God sent them. And he didn't explicitly say it, but what he was saying was, how do I know the God that sent you? How do, I, how do I know this eternal life that you've been speaking of? But Jesus knew what he was asking and his reply was, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The man asked, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying this, because the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound and cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? And then he continues on. So Nicodemus is asking the question essentially, how can I know the kingdom of God? How can I have eternal life? How can my faith have some eternal consequence? And Jesus said, you're a teacher of the law. And yet you've missed it. This has been clearly written all throughout the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, what we find is Jesus opened up the Old Testament, beginning with the law and the prophets. He went through the entire Old Testament to the listeners and he explained the Gospel. And Jesus said to the Pharisee, he said, you don't, you don't see this because you're not born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. 
Now this, of course, was very perplexing. He goes, well, what, what do you mean born again? So Jesus explains it. And this, this is a paraphrase of what he says. Everyone will be born at least once and everyone will die at least once. Everyone. Some will be born once and they will die twice. Some will be born twice and they will die once. To be born once means you're born of water. Now that's the biological nature of being born. You are conceived and in your mother's womb you grow and you live inside of this this, uh, womb that is filled with ambiotic fluid and then when it's time for birth, you always hear it, your water what? The water breaks and then the baby is ready to be born 25 hours later for my daughter. (sighs) And so um, that's being born once. So that's being born of the flesh. Every single human being was born once. They all had a mom. They all had a dad. To be born twice or to be born again is a spiritual birth. It's a birth that comes from God. So to be born again means that the Spirit of God gives you life. So you were given life physically by your mother, but God is the one who gives you life spiritually or supernaturally through Jesus Christ. So if you look at that, those who were only born once, even though they have physical life, they don't have eternal life. Why? We talked about it last week in Isaiah chapter 9, that there's darkness and the light has come into the darkness. And that light was the light of men, right? And so the darkness that we live in is in the human uh, uh, reality of, I live here, but I'm separated from God, therefore I'm in darkness. And if you're in darkness, you don't know where to go, you don't know what to do, there's confusion, there's chaos, there's brokenness, there's, there's all kinds of, of selfishness. And so if I'm born once, I'm then faced with the opportunity to be born twice. For God himself to invade, if you will, I'm going to use that word because it is an invasion. It's a, it's, a, it's a radical thing for God to invade our life and give us new birth. That's born again. That means, according to the scripture, that the old has become new. That my sinful nature has It is being conquered by a spiritual nature. It means that I have died to myself and to what I want, and I'm now yielded to Christ Jesus and what he wants. So that is what it means to be born again. So let me recap. Everybody will be born once. Everybody will, will die at least once. To be born once is to be humanly born. To die once is to humanly die. There is coming a day where you and I will lie in a box And the people that knew us will stand around and they will say good things or they will say bad things, but they will say things. And our life as we know it will be gone. But to be be born twice means that our physical birth uh, uh, is the human part, but then the spiritual birth means that we have this quality of life that that comes from God and this quality of life is also a quantity of life. So that when I die physically, I only die physically, I don't die spiritually. So I live not just for my earthly life, but I also live for all of eternity in the presence of God 
Almighty. Jesus said it this way. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll receive you to myself. So Jesus himself promised that there is something after our physical death. For those who were born a second time, with, with, uh, who were born again, when they die physically, they are in the presence of God and they have no more death. The Bible tells us that in eternity there's no more death, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness. There's no more of any of that stuff because the old is gone and God has made all things new. But here's the thing. If I am only born once and if I am not born again, then not only will I die once physically, but according to the Bible, I will die twice. I will die both physically and I will die spiritually. The Bible tells us in the last uh, chapter of Revelation, chapter or Revelation 21, that there is a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in this book, if your name is not written, you are cast away from God's presence. When the Bible talks about this eternal punishment, he speaks of it in a way that is really incomparable to us. But the best way that the Bible can describe it is by using word pictures. In, in some of the word pictures, the place where the worm does not die. The place of everlasting fire prepared not for you and for me, but prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a word picture that is called Gehenna. And it is a literal place on earth that the Jewish people would have understood. See, if you go to Jerusalem, you will have a valley on one side and a valley on another side. And where they come together is called Gehenna. It is a trash dump. It's where the city dumps their refuge. And that trash dump is constantly smoldering in fire. And the reason for that, of course, is with your trash, you either burn it or you bury it, right? You got to do something to get rid of it. And so it's this constant burning fire. So when the scripture talks about hell, that's one of the pictures that we're given, Gehenna. Now you might say, how rude or how cruel of God. If he really loved us, he would not send anyone to hell. But here's the truth of the matter. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He simply gives people what they've asked for and ultimately what they deserve. You say, well, how, how does anybody ask for that? You ask for hell by rejecting the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The fool says in his heart, Psalm chapter 1, the fool says in his heart, no God. In your Bible might say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Which that makes sense, but a literal translation is the fool says in his heart, no God. Which means, I don't want God. I don't want to yield to God. I don't acknowledge God. My way is my way. And so God says, you want it your way. I will give you simply what you asked for. That's part of the justice of God. I, I believe that people... People go to hell kicking and screaming against the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love of an almighty God. The Bible says he is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to, or to eternal life. So God's desire, God's heart is for salvation. And yet you and I, well hopefully not you and I, but people all over the world, they reject the saving grace of Jesus. 
It would be like this. If I were uh, taking my boat out into the bay and as I was out there, I saw a man that was struggling in the water. He was flailing his arms and he was getting less and less able to keep his head afloat. And as I drove by, I reached out to grab him to rescue him and he pushes my arms away. He said, no, no. I said, but I, but I can help you. I've got a boat. I'm strong. I can put you in. I can save you. I don't want your salvation. I'm going to swim. I will, I will save myself. And then I would, I would take and I would throw a raft or some type of life vest and say, put this on. It'll, it'll help you float. No, I refuse. I don't want it. I will save myself. And last but not least, if I jump into the water and swim to the man and try to rescue him, and yet he fights and he hits and he kicks and he pushes me away, I've done everything I can do to rescue him, and yet his choice was I can do it myself. In my mind, that's the biblical picture of God, that he chases after us, seeking to rescue that which was lost. And yet if we push him away over and over and over, we refuse to believe that at some point God is going to say, then I shall give you what you have asked for. You say, well, why doesn't God just overlook that? It has to do with the justice of God and has to do with the nature of God. God is a holy, righteous God. The Bible says there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Either yours or the substitution, the blood of Jesus Christ. So how can you know that you're saved? It comes through what the Scriptures talks about in believing in the message of the gospel. It's when you are in the water flailing and sinking and God says, I can save you, and you say, I trust you. I believe you. I receive you. I'm asking you to save me. That's where salvation happens. Now, if, 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 we, if we look at just a few more things here in John chapter 3, I want to point out a few things. The man was a Pharisee, which means he was religious. You could say it this way. He was a church member. He tithed. He read his Bible. He prayed. He did good deeds. He helped old ladies across the street. He didn't kick dogs. You know, he was, he was a, probably a decent, good, moral person on the outside. And yet Jesus said of the Pharisees, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Do you know it's entirely possible to be sitting here today and be separate from God? Even though you might have sung some songs and even though there might have been a time where you even said a prayer, it's entirely possible that you don't know Jesus. Now, that's not my job to tell you whether you do or don't. I got enough to worry about with myself. But the question for you is, does your faith, is your faith a saving faith or is your faith a head knowledge faith? Because the Bible tells us in the book of James, oh, you believe in God? Super duper. That's in the Greek. No, it's not really. You believe in God? Great. Even the demons believe and tremble. So to say, oh, of course I believe in God, that's not enough. It's not a head knowledge. It is a belief that is moved, or it is a belief that is demonstrated by action. It is a faith that has legs to it. In James, again, faith without works is dead. 
It's not actually faith at all. It's lip service. So Nicodemus was a religious teacher. He was a moral person according to his own morality. But he was not born again. His good works were not enough to settle his debt of sin. And as such, he could not know the kingdom of God. So how do you know? Go back to 1 John in verse 10. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out... uh, Anyone who does not believe God has made God out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So remember I told you that, that either people can, do not believe that they're bad enough, they don't, they, they don't, they don't believe they, they need a Savior, but then the second part is they don't believe that Jesus is the Savior. The Bible clearly says he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And the Scripture testifies to this multiple times. The Scripture tells us there is one mediator between God and man. That mediator is Christ Jesus. Jesus Himself said these words. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He also said He is the gate He is the door. He is the good shepherd. Multiple times, Jesus clearly said, if you want to know the Father, you must go through me. But what does that mean? What does it mean to go through Jesus? Well, if anyone or anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart, to believe in the Son of God is to place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father, and that belief is evidenced by the fruit of your life. Let me say it a different way. To believe in Jesus is to have a relationship with Jesus. It's to love Jesus. And love has consequences, doesn't it? Because if you say you love somebody, but you don't act like you love somebody... There has to be a question, do you really love somebody, right? Like when I got married to my wife, I was making a commitment to her. And my life has to look like I'm married. And it has to look like there's a commitment. It has to look like I love her. Otherwise, I don't really love her. I just went through the motions. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Someone cannot just say, oh, of course I believe in Jesus, There has to be an evidence in their life that demonstrates that the faith that they proclaim is a real and genuine faith. So what does that look like? Well, 1 John tells us, number one, you have testimony inside of you. That testimony is the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible tells us that when we trust in Jesus Christ, He gives us a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. In other words, if you go to the store to buy a car and, uh, and, and you got to go and you got to work out some financing, you might put a down payment on that car. That's a deposit. 
Or if you buy a house, let's say it that way. You, go, you want to buy a house, you tell the owners, I want to buy this house. Here's a down payment. Here's $1,000. Here's $5,000. The down payment is non-refundable. And if you back out, you lose your down payment, usually. That down payment guarantees that you're going to come back to the table with the full payment of what you promised. When God gives you His Spirit, He is depositing in you His... Or when, God, when you are saved, God puts inside of you His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that everything He's ever said will be true in your life. Because God never loses a deposit. He's just that way. And so that deposit inside of you is the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. That Holy Spirit is the testimony inside of you that you are born of God. You say, well, how do I know that that's the case? Well, the best answer I can give you is this. When I was young and I went fishing with, with family members, you know, I, I would feel the, the line and, and I'd be like, I'd, I'd be jerking my bait all the time. They're like, no, 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 you don't have a bite. That's just the current or that's just, uh, that's just uh, 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 nibbling. Well, how do I know? My question, how do I know that I have a fish? What's the answer? You'll just know, Right? That was the worst answer ever to a four-year-old. I'll just know. But true enough, when I had a fish, I just knew. Because it was unmistakable that there was a fish on my line. When you have the Spirit of God, it should be unmistakable. Because there's evidence of the Spirit in your life. We call that the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence in, of, in your life that the Spirit of God is in your life. So the first question is, do you bear any of the fruit of the Spirit? Now, if you think about fruit, think of it this way. You don't go a tree being a bare tree to an apple, boom, just like that, right? No, what do you have? You have a little bud, right? And then that little bud turns into a little dinky thingamajiggy. You know, I'm not an apple orchard farmer, but I'm, I know enough to know that you don't go from nothing to giant delicious fruit overnight. In fact, some of the fruit sour until it's ripe and ready to go. So the work of God in your life when you're first born again is that baby stuff, right? But there's at least some evidence there. And then the longer you walk with Christ, the more that fruit grows and matures. And by the end of your life, you should have more fruit that is good fruit than you did when you started, that, that should be the way that it goes. But nevertheless, the moment that the, that the Spirit is inside of you, you begin to have some of that fruit. And it, and, it, and it changes you. It's different. That's one of the ways that you know because of the fruit of the Spirit. Another way is by looking at what God's Spirit does, what His purpose is. His purpose is to convict of sin. And so in your life, if there's no conviction of sin, you likely don't know God. Because you cannot continue in sin with no conviction and be born again. Because the Spirit cannot deal with that just silently. That's not how it works. Now there are times when we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can, we can tone down His voice. But if there's zero conviction about any sin in your life, you're likely not born again. Because the Spirit of God, that's one of His jobs, is to bring conviction He's also the comforter. Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you what? I'm going to send you the comforter. That's the comfort that comes from God. It's where the peace of God that transcends all understanding comes from. 
because Christ Jesus, through, or the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and there's a peace that passes understanding and, and even in the midst of great turmoil, there's still that, that, that aroma of peace. So he's, he convicts, uh, there's fruit of the Spirit, he convicts of sin, he brings comfort, he also brings wisdom and discernment. If the Spirit of God is inside of you, you're able to discern things and to know things that you ordinarily could not know with just human eyes because those things are spiritually discerned. So you put all of that, oh, then the, the next thing is there's a power. I mean, we, we don't even have time to talk about that, but when you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, there is a supernatural power inside of you to do the things that God commanded you to do because it's not you, but it's Him working through you and in you for His own purposes. But that's a whole other conversation. So, in your life, do you have the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit will testify in your spirit that you know Him. In your life, do you believe in Jesus? Not just a head knowledge, but a faith and a trust. How do you know you actually believe? That's the question. You know you believe when there is a love for God and a love for others evidenced in your life. If you do not love others, you do not love God. That's what the Bible says. If you do not love God, you have not believed. Because that's what the Bible says. Now, let me, let me give a little caveat because I hope that some of you will go back and you'll read 1 John more in depth. We don't have all the time we need today in just 30 minutes to do this, but... I was always leery of speaking or teaching 1 John, and here's why. 1 John uses, human, uses English words to translate what was written originally in Koine Greek. Koine Greek is a dead language. Nobody speaks it anymore. But Koine Greek is a very complicated language. Now, they tell me that English is hard to learn, Greek is even more difficult to learn. I did some Greek in college, and the book that we translated to learn Greek was 1 John. And this is where I discovered that it, don't, it doesn't mean what you think it means, right? Uh, Y'all get that movie quote, I hope. I don't think it means what you think it means. No, okay, nobody's laughing, so just let, let me enjoy. Okay, let's see. Here, here's what I mean. In, the, in Greek, you have mood, you have tense, you have gender. So every verb has a mood, has a tense, has a gender. Could be neutral, could be masculine, could be feminine. It could be a present imperfect passive. It could be an imperfect uh, future. I mean, it, it's got all of these different nuances to every single word based on what word is used. So when we're translating the Greek into the English so that we can read it, because we don't understand Greek, it's all Greek to me, right? We're looking at this, and, and, and we're going, uh, uh, so, so we read it, and we go, man, that's harsh. That's tough. I don't know how I can do that. But it's because you're looking at the English and not at the original language. Because the original language actually clarifies with nine words what we're looking at, a translation of one word. Does that make sense to you? Turn to the person next to you. Does that make sense? So, oh, let, let me say it this way. It's like when my wife says to me, would you like tacos for dinner? Now, I think that what she means is, would I like tacos for dinner? 
It doesn't mean what you think it means. It could mean you're cooking tacos for dinner. It could mean I don't really want tacos. I want fajitas. It could mean we're not having anything for dinner. I don't have any clue because I'm not in her head. I'm not saying that mean or pejoratively. I'm just saying, guys, can I get a witness? Okay, women, can I get a witness? Could you at least be, right? Because there's so much involved. There's just not enough, there's just not enough words in that one phrase to fully describe. So for me to understand what's being said, I have to look and I have to listen and I have to feel and I have to process and I have to think. And even then I'm going to get it wrong, but at least I tried. That is 1 John. That's 1 John. When the scripture tells us, let me just give you one. Uh, okay, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust. Uh, they come from the Father, but not from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the, but the man who does the will of God lives on forever. Do not love the world. What does that mean? Right? Well, when the scripture here talks about sin, if you sin, you don't know Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to find that particular verse. I'm not looking at it right at the top of my head. Okay, here it is. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is, is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful. Um... Actually, that's not it. Just trust me on that. There, there are words in here that mean so much more than just what the English word means. I tell you that to say, when the scripture says that we know that we know God because of our love for God, it's not just a regular, oh, I love God. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he, in the son, and he is in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There's no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. One of the evidences that you've believed in God is that you love God and that you love your brother. That's the whole point. But it doesn't mean that if you wrestle with relationships, you don't love God. It doesn't mean that if you sin, 
you don't love God. It means your love for God and your love for your neighbor is, is chief in your life. It's, it's the highest value in your life. And even though you may fail, you still hold, it, hold to the fact that I love God and I love my neighbor. Go back to the marriage illustration. I don't always succeed in being a good husband. Now, I do 99.97% of the time. Okay, that was really funny in my head. Apparently, not so much out loud. But if I, if I fail at loving my wife, at being a good husband, it doesn't mean we're not married. It just means that I haven't lived up to what I aspire to do and what I have committed to do, but I'm wrestling at that moment with, some, with, with a love issue. But if there is a continual pattern of not loving my wife, if there is a continuing unfaithfulness with my wife, if there's a continuing uh, 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 abandonment and all those kinds of things, then I don't love my wife. I've got, a, I've got a certificate that says I do, but my life doesn't demonstrate it. And therefore, the evidence is more real than the certificate. That's the way it is with loving God. Doesn't mean you won't fail. It doesn't mean you won't have to come back and say, Lord, forgive me, because we just read, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. He'll forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? If anyone does sin, we have a, a mediator. So we have that promise, but we don't continue in sin. We don't continue to follow sin. We don't love sin. We don't uh, 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 continue to cherish sin apart from our relationship with God if we love God. So now you know why I always strayed away from preaching 1 John. Because 1 John puts the responsibility on you. Because it, it says it's possible that you look like you love God on the surface, but you don't really love him in your heart. And it's possible that you could even look like you don't love him on the surface, but you really do in your heart. It's not about what it looks like. It's about the substance of what is actually going on in your life. We preachers like to have certainties. We like to be able to say, if you will pray this prayer, and if you will walk down the aisle, and if you will be baptized, you are saved, and your eternity is secure with God. But I got really bad news for you, or actually good news for you. There's nothing magical about a prayer. You could actually say that prayer five different times and you could walk down the aisle five different times. You could even be baptized five different times and still be separated from God and lost. And yet you could one day in your car driving down the interstate hear the voice of God, not audibly, but inside of your heart say, why have you been running from me? And you say to God, God, but I'm doing all these good things. And God says, no, you've been doing dead works. I want your heart. I want your life. I want your love. And while you're driving down the interstate, you could say, God, I give. And that is your moment of born again. See, it's not as cut and dry as we sometimes like to think it is. I used to believe that being born again was a moment in time that everybody would be able to explain and and identify. I don't believe that anymore. Because I think sometimes we wake up and we look back and we say, you know what? I actually do love God. I actually do believe in Him. I'm not sure where that started. 
But there's something inside of me that says, I, I, I need him and I want him and he's my everything. And I, and, I, and, I, and I go back and I say, well, maybe it was here, maybe it was here, maybe it was here. But I can't say for absolute certain. All I know is that something inside of me changed. And that's okay. Because the real question is not necessarily when. The real question is, did you? Or rather, do you? Do you love God? If you love God, you love the Son. Because it's only through the Son that we find God. Could you imagine being my friend and despising my wife or my kids? You wouldn't eat at my house much. I might meet you at McDonald's, but I'm not bringing you over to the house. Not going to happen. If you love the Father, you love the Son. So this morning, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Not your lip service, but your life. Have you been born again? The evidence of that is the life that you live. Are you being obedient to God? Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. If you're not obeying the commands of God, you need to question whether or not you love God. Because the two are inseparable. Sure, we get off track sometimes, but the two are inseparable. Is the Holy Spirit inside of you testifying that you have a relationship with God? Are you demonstrating any of the fruit of the Spirit in any way whatsoever? Do you love your brother? Because the Bible says if you say you love your brother but you don't, or if you say you love God but you hate your brother, you actually don't love God. Are you wrestling with conviction and are you experiencing the comfort those are the evidences of salvation. So, I have to make a choice. And I have to make the choice by tomorrow. There is a time limit. My choice is whether to keep these clothes or send them back. So, I've tried them on. But see, I've done it safely. I've kept the tags on. Because I'm just not sure if I'm going to keep them. I'm just not certain if this, is, if this is me. But there is an ending point. The company said, you must decide by Monday or you will pay. You must decide. And so I left the tags on because I was uncertain. For me to decide is for me to buy in completely. It's for me to say, you know what? I do believe this is the look. I do believe that I want this in my life and for my life. So I choose. To go all in. There's no turning back. Some of you might be wearing clothes with the tags on when it comes to your faith. You're just not really sure if you buy in. You're just not really sure if you want to pay the price. Oh, believe me, there's a price. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The price of following Jesus 
is your life. It's really an exchange, your life for his life. You were buried with Christ and you were raised in a new life. This morning, I'm asking you to examine your faith deeply. Have you bought the clothes? Or are you just walking around with tags? If you're listening by Facebook, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus even now. You're not listening or watching by accident. None of us are in this room by accident. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me for just a moment? You know, I talked about this belief and the fact that sometimes we believe and yet we don't really know that we believed until there's evidence of it. But one of the things that is helpful is to actually, if you, if you know you're at that point of belief, I'm not talking about you understand it all. I'm just talking about you truly do want to believe that Jesus Christ is your only way to the Father. One of the things that we like to do is just to kind of put a line in the sand or, or, or a, a moment where you can look back and say, you know, I remember that moment where that may not have been where I chose to believe, but that's at least the moment where I expressed my belief. So this morning, if you are at that point in faith where you want to trust Jesus, you want to pull the tags, I'm going to ask you to give your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, repent and be converted that your sin may be blotted out. To repent, to recognize your condition. To be converted is to be born again. And it means your sin has now been covered by the grace because of, of God, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Say to God, God, I recognize I need you. So I give you my life and I ask you to save me. God, I receive the forgiveness that you offer only through Jesus. This morning, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to make that known. You can either talk to me after the service, tell, tell whoever you're here with. Just, just make that known. And then your next step is to follow through in believer's baptism. It's a public declaration of your faith. But the first step is trusting in Jesus. This morning, if you recognize that your faith is real, I want to invite you to live as the overcomer that God says you are. And we'll talk about that another time. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence. I pray that you would give us this hope that wells up inside of us so that our lives will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.